Hello and welcome. Grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and come into my virtual living room. Today, we're going to talk about stress. Let's talk about stress, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about all the good things and the bad things that may be. Let's talk about stress. Let's talk about stress. The stress, something that every single human being on the planet is familiar with. Now, the challenge of stress is that it's something that we need to learn how to manage effectively. Stress is a part of life. Because stress is here to stay, it is to our advantage to make time to examine it, to learn how to work with it. So what is stress? How does it affect us? And what are some skillful strategies to respond to stress? We're going to get into all of that inside of today's episode. Stress is a household word commonly used to describe the pressures and demands we experience in life. Stress itself is not necessarily negative. And a certain amount of stress supports and encourages our growth in positive ways. We need some stress. Consider stress as occurring on a continuum. Too little and we are bored and unengaged in life in any meaningful way. Too much stress and we feel overextended and suffer burnout. Our physical and mental health can be compromised at either extreme. We want to find that middle ground, the middle path that I often talk about. Because this middle ground in the continuum is where we are experiencing challenge and change in a manner that keeps us creatively engaged in life. Basically, it's that sweet spot. And that's the place that we would love to all just exist in. But we often find ourselves on one end of the continuum, usually the too much side. And while there are some people who do suffer from too little stress, most of us find ourselves trying to cope with the too many challenges and changes. And this is where mindfulness comes in. Some of the stuff I'm going to talk about in today's episode will help us when we're in this case. And in that situation, it's useful to break stress down into its components and identify what we can change to improve our situation. We kind of touched on this in previous episodes, but stress can be broken down into two components. The first is the situation. So the situation itself is the first component, and the second is our reaction to the situation. So stress equals the situation plus our reaction. And as we talked about in a previous episode, stress is our interpretation that something is dangerous or problematic, and anxiety is the emotional response that is elicited by that perception. So we're going to dive a little deeper into stress and how it can contribute to anxiety, and we will also discuss how to manage our stress and the different ways that stress can show up in our lives. As I mentioned in previous episodes, the idea of the two arrows. So stress is one of the first arrows of life, meaning that it's inevitable. So as a reminder, the first arrow is the inevitable pains of life. So stress is one of those first arrows. We will all experience stress in some form at some point in our life, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. As I said, in fact, stress can be good for us, right? That continuum that we want to think about when it comes to stress. And we want to to think about it like Goldilocks and the three bears. Not too little, not too much, just enough. So what does just enough look like? While stress can have detrimental effects, it may not be entirely negative. It can motivate people to complete tasks, accomplish goals, and achieve the best results. The right amount of stress, meaning stress under the right circumstances and for the right amount of time, a type of anxiety known as eustress or healthy stress, can energize you and boost your motivation. 
Have you ever noticed that you tend to perform better when you're nervous? Whether it's giving a presentation at work or completing a project under deadline, the butterflies in your tummy leading up to an event can be put to good use. So this is the moment where you can thank your body's fight or flight response because the hormones that rush in that tense your muscles or raise your blood pressure and spike your heart rate whenever your body suspects it's in danger, this same system that is activated when we're in a life or death situation allows you to react quickly and decisively, which is when stress is a good thing. So this rush of stress hormones, it boosts the level of sugar circulating in your bloodstream, giving you a jolt of energy. Well, your brain simultaneously goes into overdrive, drawing more oxygen and glucose from the blood for peak performance. This is why in your college university days, you could pull an all-nighter and still do well on your paper. In short bursts and in, right, and in, in short bursts and in the right amounts, anxiety can improve your memory and concentration in the short term, which is why you find yourself so productive when you're up against a rapidly approaching deadline. Yet... Too much can be counterproductive because it leaves you so paralyzed with worry that you can't move forward. That feeling of having a knife dangling over your head that is familiar to a lot of us, that's when it's a bit too much stress and you're feeling paralyzed. So I just touched on some of the good the good parts of stress, but on the other hand, excessive stress can increase your risk of depression, headaches, sleep issues, stomach discomfort, and high blood pressure. So too little stress leads to inertia and too much can lead to burnout. That's why we want to Goldilocks things and find that sweet spot. And with this continuum, a lot of the time judgments come in. We've talked about judgments before that second arrow, the thoughts, judgments, resistance to the first arrow. So our thoughts around stress, if we're having too little stress and we're feeling unmotivated, that inertia. It can lead to judgments around being lazy. And then too much stress can lead to the judgments around this isn't fair, this is too much, I can't handle this all, right? All these judgments that compound the experience of the first arrow. So we're going to want to be mindful about our thoughts that come up around our first arrow of dealing with stress. We need the right amount of stress to give us the motivation to take action. If there's no stress, no urgency, then we tend to think, well, what's the point? And then we don't take action. If there's, if something is too nebulous, it can be hard to be motivated to get started. It's too big, it's too abstract. It can lead to that inertia or it can lead to the other end of the continuum where we overthink it and we stress ourselves out. So too much stress can lead to feeling overwhelmed, which can cause us to enter into the other side of our fight or flight response, which is the freeze state. And this is also what's known as the Yerkes-Dodson law, the idea that performance increases with physiological or mental arousal, so stress, but only up to a point. And when the level of stress becomes too high, performance actually decreases. So this is why we can enter into that free state. We can be going, 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 like, you know, you might be one of those people who's like, oh yeah, I love a deadline. I stay up all night and I procrastinate to, right up to the very end and then I get it all done and everything's great, but too much of that. And then we get into that deer in headlines, deer in headlight state where we freeze. We don't know what to, where to get started. Analysis paralysis kicks in. Everything feels too much. We get overburdened and we get overwhelmed and we just can't even take action. And so that's where we want to find that sort of sweet spot. And this is something that's been studied forever. There was a study done at the turn of the century and it found that while mild electrical shock motivated the rats to complete a maze, when the shock became too strong, 
the rats became so frantic that they couldn't complete the task. Again, that sweet spot, I mean, which is weird to talk about in regards to electrical shock, but finding that sweet spot of stress, the Goldilocks and the Three Bears version, what is just the right amount for you, keep you motivated without feeling too little and getting into being a bit more sedentary and too much and heading in towards burnout. That'll differ for all of us. My Mac state and my friend Lindsay's Mac state are very, very different. A lot of this is because of the brain injury. Everything takes three times as long on a good day and I'm easily overwhelmed and frustrated. So my Mac is a lot lower than a lot of people's and mindfulness really helps me to identify what my max is and to work with it. We're going to speak a lot about mindfulness, obviously, in this podcast, but two of the main things we're going to touch on are resistance and acceptance. And I'll speak in depth on what that means and what that looks like. So too much stress leads to burnout. We want to find that sweet spot, but on top of that, we have to keep in mind that walking around with chronically high levels that walking around with chronically high levels of stress is bad for our long-term health. And it can do damage from, to everything from your heart to your brain cells to your immune system. So stress and paying attention to it is very, 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 very important. When I was in university quite a while ago, getting my undergrad, I was also an Irish dancer. My mom's from Ireland. She put my sister and I into Irish dancing when we were kids and I kind of stuck with it. I traveled a lot, competed a lot. I practiced a lot. I I was all right as a dancer. <laughs> I really wish I had learned mindfulness back in the day because a lot of my issues were anxiety related, you know, getting nervous and too nervous and big competitions really brought up my anxiety and kind of like the rats where they became so frantic, they couldn't complete the task. I would get so anxious and so nervous that I would dance worse than I would like practicing um, at dance class. So importance of balancing our stress. But I was competing. I was traveling. I was competing in the worlds, the Oireachtas, which is the Eastern Canadian Championships, the Nationals, which is more North American. And the worlds obviously is the world. So it was a lot of dance classes. I was also undergoing doing Pilates, working with a personal trainer and, you know, in university and trying to do well in school. I was a good student. I wasn't a great student, which is a judgment. But by that, I mean, I studied hard, worked hard and got good grades. But studying and school didn't come easy to me. I had to work for it. And dancing didn't come easy for me. And dancing didn't come easy to me either. I had to work for that too. So it was a lot, a lot of stress. And I started getting this pain in my solar plexus region, just around my, under my rib cage, that spot. And there was a lot of discomfort. A lot of stuff was going on. I started investigating it with doctors. Wasn't sure. I thought I was, I thought I was developing an ulcer. So I had to, I saw a gastroenterologist and what they did was they ended up inserting a camera down my throat to investigate. It's an interesting process. They freeze things, but like you still have to swallow to swallow the camera. They did some searching around. They didn't find anything, 
but I was experiencing a lot of distress. Ultimately, I had to come to the realization that I had overburdened, I had overburdened my system. Too many things. Something had to go. And ultimately, I decided it was the dancing. And so I ended up quitting at the end of that sort of school year. I went as far as the world championships that year, and that was kind of the end. And it was tough and it was sad, but it was time. I knew for me, I was never going to become a dance teacher. There is only so far you can go with Irish dancing. I had competed, I had traveled, I had danced professionally. There is a, a show here in Toronto called The Needfire. I was a cast member of that for one of the, the theatrical runs, which was an amazing experience. So I kind of felt like for me, I had done everything I was going, I had achieved everything I was going to achieve in the Irish dancing. At this time, I still had dreams of getting my master's in psychology. And so I knew that I had to study hard, get good grades because it's very competitive to get into grad school. And so I made the mindful decision to cut back from dancing and to eventually quit, which really did help to get rid of the sensation, no more suspected ulcer, no more discomfort. And I got to a place where I could manage my stress. That was something that I had to do. I had to figure out what I was going to do. And in a situation like that, there was a problem that I needed to solve. And there are options for solving any problem. And I, this is something that I used to teach when I was working as a psychotherapist. It comes from dialectical behavior therapy or DBT. There are four options for solving any problem. One, we can solve the problem. And by that, I mean, we can change the situation or avoid it, leave or get out of the situation for good, which is what I ended up doing by quitting the Irish dancing. The second option is to feel better about the problem. We can change or regulate our emotional response to the problem. Three, we can tolerate the problem, accept and tolerate both the problem and your response to the problem. Or four, to stay miserable or possibly make it worse, which is controversial to talk about as a therapist. I'm going to get into that a little bit more. So the problem solves. So I would teach my clients skills that they could use to, to start to problem solve. I talked a bit before about like the middle path, you know, finding that sweet spot and to use problem-solving skills. So I would teach, you know, emotion regulation skills, interpersonal skills, so like communication skills, things like that, to help to learn how to solve the problem. And to feel, we want to feel better about the problem, some of the emotion regulation skills that I kind of touch on inside of this podcast and I teach inside of my programs will help you to do that. To tolerate the problem, again, distress, distress tolerance, which is another DBT skill, and mindfulness skills. I teach some distress tolerance skills in my programs. And I'm obviously always teaching mindfulness skills. And then the last one to stay miserable. So no, using no skills. So not learning anything. And again, this sounds so controversial and terrible. Even saying it like here now, I'm like, ooh. But for real, all of these things are hard to accept. But we often have choices. We often have choices in every situation. We don't always have good choices, big choices, but we have a choice. We can choose to stay miserable. We can choose to do nothing, which could potentially make things worse. We could choose to just, you know, dig our heads in the sands and just stay miserable. 
we can choose to tolerate the problem. I don't have to like the situation, but I can learn to coexist with it. Whether that's, you know, I have this big project for work. There's this tight deadline. I have a lot to do. It's going to lead to a lot of late nights, a lot of early mornings. It's going to be really tough, but it's a short-term problem and I can tolerate it. I don't have to like it, but I can tolerate it until it's done. I can learn how to feel better about the problem. How can I shift my emotional response around this? This is a big thing that I do in the brain, inj the brain injury community. We don't have to like the fact that we have brain injuries to learn to feel somewhat better about the reality of our life. Not easy to do, obviously. I'm a living, breathing example of that, but it is something that is, is possible with work. And... The first one, again, to solve the problem. How can I change the situation? Can I leave it? Can I get out of the situation in some way? Can I avoid it? Can I leave it right? Can I get out? Like, what can I do? Can I get out of the situation? As I did with the Irish dancing. And this goes back to the Goldilocks rule of stress. Our solution, our option for solving the problem will depend on how stressful things are, right? If we're at that far end of the continuum where things are so overwhelming and we're so stressed out that we're getting towards burnout, we're going to probably need to figure out a way to change the situation. And if we're further on the other end, the inertia, that's probably where we kind of feel like we're staying miserable. So thinking about stress and solving the problem, since we touched on, an employer assigns you a complex task that needs to be completed in a brief time frame. So the stressful situation is the work assignment with a fast approaching deadline. Your reaction to the assignment can vary considerably. Do your muscles tense? Do you remain calm? Are you realistic in your expectations or maybe demand perfection? How you choose to see and handle the situation will determine how much stress you experience. So sometimes we can change the situation that is triggering the stress. In the previous example, it could be a possibility to extend the deadline or to get help from coworkers. At other times, the situation itself cannot be changed. So experiencing... Chronic pain or illness, a decision by company owners to downsize the office or getting stuck in traffic on the way to an important engagement. I can't change that. But in those situations, I can maybe change my response to the situation. So when we cannot change the situation to reduce our stress, we can look inward and take charge of our response, our response to stress. There are three elements that constitute our response to stress. The first is our physical reaction or what is happening in the body. I touched on this with the dancing, with the feeling like I was getting an ulcer. The second is our cognitive reaction or what we are thinking and our attitude towards the situation. And the third is our emotional reaction or what we are feeling. These three responses are interwoven and influence one another. I am going to focus in this podcast on our cognitive reaction, what we're thinking and our attitude towards the situation. And one of the ways we want to do this is we want to first, we want to start by monitoring our anxiety levels. So paying attention on a daily basis, day-to-day -day symptoms, such as feeling more irritable than normal, having trouble falling and staying asleep, headaches, or depression. You notice any of these symptoms and they persist for more than a couple of weeks. It may be a sign that anxiety is straining your body. And it's important to remember that everyone handles stress differently. What stresses me out may be nothing for you. What stresses you out might be different for me. If you're experiencing some stress, but it's not preventing you from eating regularly, getting enough sleep, and otherwise taking care of yourself, then you're probably in the right zone. But we always, always, always want to be paying attention. 
If you are having trouble falling asleep, doing a meditation before bed can be really, really helpful after the accident hints. Oh, so after the first accident, I can't believe I have to specify. After the first accident, I had intense anxiety and I started listening to a body scan meditation before bed and it worked like a charm. Every time I was asleep before the meditation finished, I would just kind of that dozy state, which is what we want to achieve because... When we're trying to fall asleep, trying to sort of force our bodies to sleep is impossible. But aiming for that dozy state is a lot more achievable. And that's the state that leads us into falling asleep. So the body scan meditation worked like a treat. And to be completely honest, every single time I have listened to a body scan meditation, I have fallen asleep, which is great when I'm putting one on before bedtime. Less great during my training program, like where I was training to be a mindfulness teacher. And I wanted to stay awake to listen to the body scan because I had to eventually, you know, teach the body scan meditation. And I fell asleep every single time. But reality acceptance, I fell asleep to the body scan meditation. So when I'm having a hard time falling asleep, I put on a meditation. Listening to a meditation before bed works. So I am going to include a link in the show notes where you can sign up for one of my body scan meditations if you are somebody who has trouble falling asleep. What do we do when it's stress at work, when it's outside of ourselves, right? If there's some, there's a problem outside of us, something at, 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 something at work, a stress, an external thing that is causing these emotions. That's when we talked about, we touched on the four ways of solving a problem. And the same if it's an internal thing, right? Like when I was super stressed out during all the surgeries and all the trauma and all that, like I couldn't, I couldn't change it. Like I couldn't change the situation. Not really. Not until I had the final surgery, but like I couldn't, I couldn't do any, I couldn't solve, so to speak, the problem. I'm not the surgeon. Some of it was that it actually like takes time. And then like, you know, COVID shut down the operating rooms here in Ontario for a while. Like there's a whole bunch of things that I couldn't do a whole heck of a lot about it, but I could learn to tolerate the problem. And so, and the same, like, so the same strategies that we use, if it's an internal situation, like I was just talking about there with my health struggles, external, like the dancing, we can use some of the strategies that I will touch on today. Now, as I mentioned, we're going to focus mostly on the cognitive reaction to stress in this episode, but I want to touch on one strategy that I teach, and it's called the choose one strategy. Because sometimes it's not always easy to find and exert some sort of control, especially when stress is that as a work stress. And so finding ways that we can prioritize certain emails and projects, a way of exerting a small bit of control can feel, can feel helpful. And so my strategy called the choose one strategy can come into play in these situations. When there's a long list of things that you need to do, choose one and focus on that, get it done, and then choose the next. Very simple strategy. But this strategy is my go-to on mental or physical health days because choosing one thing to focus on and getting it done erases one of those niggling little thoughts out of my head and it helps me to feel productive. There are days where I feel like I have zero spoons left in my drawer, but I also know that future Charlene would really, really appreciate it if I could get something done. And so in those moments, I utilize this, this strategy and I choose one thing that I can do right now in this moment that'll help out future Charlene. 
Like right now, future Charlene is being helped out by me recording this episode. But sometimes future Charlene is helped out by making a big batch of veggies that she can eat throughout the week or doing the dishes in the sink or the, I actually wrote about this strategy in one of my emails that I send out to people who are inside the mindfulness community where I talked about the choose one strategy. And that was the email. This was my choose one. I knew that I wanted to get this email done. It was something that I felt like I could do. I kept mentally sort of writing it in my head. So by actually writing it out and scheduling it to go out to my list, I could stop thinking about it. It reduced some of that mental clutter. And that is super helpful for me to manage my stress because it's one less thing I'm thinking about. And it creates this sense of ease and stop thinking about this. It's done. It's scheduled. It's great. And it was one thing. And it was the only thing that I sort of did that day. And that's a judgment saying it's the only thing I did that day, but I had had a busy day with appointments. And so there was, I was left with no spoons, but I could finish this email because I had had it half mentally written. So I typed it out, scheduled it, and it went out the next day. And I actually had people replying to me and letting me know, oh my gosh, this strategy is so great. I'm going to start to utilize it because it works. And it works because most of the time it doesn't matter what order we work in when, and when it does matter, when there's one task with an obvious deadline, then we can still use this method because we can choose which part of it we start with. This choice, taking the time to choose helps because it allows you to exert some small bit of control over a situation that is causing you stress. So take, for example, this podcast. I've known for a while I wanted to start a podcast and it felt like now is the right time, but starting a podcast, that's nebulous. That's huge. That's vague. I mean, that's so broad. That doesn't ease any kind of stress. It actually creates a lot of stress because what does it really mean to start a podcast? So sitting down, what I call quiet contemplation, which basically means sitting still and thinking about the task. So I broke it down into components. For me, reality acceptance meant that starting a podcast needed to be more structured. I teach, in, as I mentioned, I teach in the brain injury community. I tend to teach in three or four month increments. So three months felt doable for a podcast, 12 episodes. I felt like a nice container. I could focus on 12 episodes, one episode at a time. Done. Season one, 12 episodes. Sounds great. And then I created a theme for season one, easing anxiety. Great. Now I know exactly what I'm going to talk about in each episode. And then I created an outline. These are my 12 episodes. These are what I'm talking about in each one of these episodes. Perfect. I had the name even before I knew when I was going to start the podcast. Great. That was one last thing done. But like you break it down. So first it's, what am I going to call the podcast? How many episodes are in a season? And this isn't done in a day, one at a time. And even when it comes to each episode, the first thing I do is I do my research and then I come up with a script from my research. So I pull in different things that I want to talk about. I gather up and like not literally gather up because it's all in the head, but I gather up what stories are going to be connected to this topic. So I put all this together, the research, I write the script, and then I pick the date that I'm going to record the episode. And then on another, like these are all different days. They're one task at a time and it makes it 
easier. It takes recording, editing, publishing an episode a week into bite-sized or somewhat bite-sized tasks that makes it more manageable. And sometimes I choose a day to record an episode and then, you know, life with a brain injury and chronic pain doesn't always work out. I was supposed to. And we want to watch and pay attention to those supposed tos when they show up in our head, those thoughts. But I was supposed to record this episode on Tuesday, but Tuesday I had a headache. And when I say a headache, I mean like a low-grade migraine. So I, I'm the day I was supposed to record it, I woke up with a headache. And on headache days, migraine days, recording just amplifies it and makes everything worse. Some people need quiet and dark to uh, manage their migraines. I need to not talk and to minimize my thinking. So there goes recording the podcast that day. So then I had to find an alternative day. And then I had to practice acceptance around the fact that I couldn't record the podcast on the day I wanted to record the podcast. And then, you know, practicing acceptance and doing my mindfulness around some of the feelings that might come up around the fact that I couldn't do things the way I wanted to write the shoulds, the thoughts, the, you know, all the things that we talked about with solving any problem. So I scheduled it for another day. And all of this is a way of finding, you know, bits of control, one episode at a time, one thing at a time, this task, and then I cross it off. And then the next day I do the next task or that same day, whichever works for you. But it's finding a small measure of control in a situation that seems like we're, where we have none. So me choosing what order that I work in when it comes to a big task that maybe is outside of my control is helpful because it feels like, yeah, I've got this. This is up to me. I get to decide. I get to choose. When you feel like you have no choice, no control, that's huge. It's a huge thing to feel like I've got this. And I know I've talked about this before in this episode, but some people can feel driven by stress and anxiety and they may never feel anxious. But and even in those people and even in those situations, there could be underlying anxiety. And you don't notice it because you're still able to get the job done. And the ability to get the job done leads you to feeling like things aren't out of control. But when this control begins to falter, perhaps because of one too many tasks on your plate and the underlying anxiety will surface and take its toll. That straw that broke the camel's back situation. So this is why I say we always have to be paying attention. Always, always, always. Because this stuff can live inside of our system. And then all of a sudden it's like... There goes the straw that broke the camel's back. And this is why you might be one of those people that I talked about earlier, but staying up and doing all the all-nighters in school. I was always finishing my papers at the last minute. Always, always, always. And like, back in the day, we used to have to print out our papers and physically hand them in. And I don't know about you, but it always felt like the printer would jam, break, run out of ink, whatever, stop working the night before your big paper was due. And that is a situation that you probably could handle and manage effectively any other day out of the week. But in those situations, that's when the straw that broke the camel's back. And you might you might scream, cry, however you react in stressful situations in a way that on any other day that the printer didn't work, you wouldn't care. This is why you might have never experienced anxiety in those younger days, but now you find yourself having panic attacks or high anxiety later in life when too much is happening because now there's too many balls in the air. You might become increasingly anxious and anxiety fuels more anxiety. So this is why, again, 
I'm saying we need to constantly be paying attention to our thoughts, our emotions, and how they're showing up in the body as sensations and how they're showing up in our actions. As I touched on the fight or flight or freeze, right? Too much anxiety can lead to feeling overwhelmed, paralyzing you in that freeze state. This is why we're always paying attention. Now, I talked about the three reactions, the physical, the cognitive, and the emotional. And right now I'm going to get into more of that cognitive reaction. Now, I'm going to get a little controversial here. We've discussed how stress can be good and it can be bad. and can sometimes be our own creation. Like we can create our own stress with our thoughts. And I'll explain a bit more about this. We've talked about our thoughts. I talk about thoughts all the time. Our thoughts feed our emotions and our negative self-talk can amplify our anxiety. And sometimes we can be the masters of our own doom by creating stress with our thoughts. Stress that didn't need to exist, but we created it because of our expectations of how things should be, the shoulds, those thoughts again, those shoulds, and they do a lot of damage, and our resistance to the reality of life. We don't have to like things to accept them. So I touched on resistance and acceptance, and we're going to get into a bit more of that right now. So when I say we can create our own stress, I have an email list. I send every week, I send out an email list an email newsletter with mindfulness tips. Sometimes I send out a guided meditation, etc. I usually send this email out every week on a Thursday, a deadline I set for myself. Only sometimes I'm struggling with getting the email written and sent out by Thursday. This one choice, this, sorry, this choose one strategy that I touched on earlier was one of those weeks. I had a rough draft of an email and I just couldn't get it together. It wasn't coming. I kept trying and trying and couldn't get it. And frustration breeds more frustration. So I had to walk away. When I get frustrated, I get headaches. So everything gets worse. So I walked away, took some space and I took a walk and I was just kind of, you know, mentally processing the situation. And so I was struggling with getting the email written. It wasn't coming together. I couldn't get my thoughts together. I had a topic. I had a rough draft, but I couldn't get it done. I was most of the way there, but I couldn't finish it. That overwhelmed freeze state was starting to kick in. And in this moment, I have two choices. I can let go of my attachment to sending it by Thursday and instead send it out Friday, Saturday, whenever it's ready. Or I can force myself to get it done and send out by Thursday and worrying and stress and continue to stress over it. But here's the thing. And this is why I say sometimes we create this own stress. Sending out an email is something that I do for my business and my clients and students, but it's not a task that has a set in stone end date. Nobody cares email goes out Thursday morning or Friday evening, other than myself, because I've set this imaginary deadline. And unless there's something that is actually time sensitive that is connected to this email, it doesn't matter when it goes out. The stress in this situation is created by me in my head with my thoughts. The fact is most people who read my emails probably don't even know in their own heads what date or time I send them. This is only an example, and it's obviously not a life or death one, but it is one that comes up in my business time and time again. And it is one that I see in my colleagues' businesses time and time again. So many times I get an email from someone that starts off with, well, I know I always send, usually send it on Thursday, but I was having a rough time this week, and so now I'm sending it out on Friday. And I don't mean to be... To be rude, when I say, like, nobody, nobody really cares that you didn't send it out on Thursday. You care. 
because to you, you've set this deadline. I send emails every Thursday. And I know, I know course creators and people like coaches in this area are always talking about consistency, consistency, consistency. And it is important to be consistent. It's important to stay active in your business, but ultimately doesn't matter if the email is late. Not really. I mean, again, unless there's some specific deadline, like I have to get this sent out before this thing ends. Sure. Like if I'm letting you know, hey, there's this flash sale on that ends in 10 minutes. And yeah, like I got to get that email out. I mean, I'm not, I don't have anything like that in my business, but like if there's something that like, hey, this thing is happening right now and you need to be aware of it. Sure. But most of the time, the, the stuff that we send, the work that we do, the deadlines that we create are only for ourselves. And sometimes we need to ask ourselves, is this a stress that I'm creating? Am I doing this to myself? Can I let this go? Can I drop my need to have things work on a certain like date and time? Can I let go that that resistance to doing things a little differently. Like, do I have to hold on tight to all my emails need to be sent out by Thursday at 7 a.m.? Can I let go of that resistance? And this is something with having a brain injury I have to work a lot on because everything takes me three times longer than it used to on a good day. On a medium day, it takes even longer. And on a bad day or when I'm really tired, I don't even bother because it's all gibberish and I have to redo it anyway. Like, seriously, gobbledygook. I, my script for this, I was, as I I was working on it the day when I had a headache that I thought I was going to record the episode. I couldn't, but I had a bit of a headache. And honest to goodness, there are so many words that are underlined in red in this Google Doc. They're completely misspelled, which is always an indicator to me that I need to take a break. I'm looking through this. I mean, I have an equal sign in one of the middle of one of the words. Like, it's gibberish. And so I have to stop because I just have to redo it anyways. And so then I'm just creating more work for myself. But this is acceptance. And the opposite of acceptance is resistance. And this is where mindfulness practice comes in, noticing that we're feeling stressed out, noticing where it lives inside our bodies, the thoughts and emotions connected to it. And then we check the facts. Is this something that is in my control? Is it a deadline that I can release? Can I let this go? Am I doing this to myself? I told you to be a little controversial, this idea that I'm doing this to myself. Am I creating stress for myself around whatever it is, whatever situation, based on my thoughts, based on my expectations of how things should be? Is it holding myself to a rigid expectation of where I should be in my life at this stage? Is it making a task bigger than it needs to be, making a problem bigger than it needs to be? Am I slinging that second arrow, the thoughts, judgments, resistance to whatever that first arrow is of my life? Am I making mountains out of molehills? I said, this is controversial, this idea that I'm doing it to myself, but I create stress for myself all the time. I can think myself into a migraine like nobody's business, except, you know, I practice mindfulness all the time. So I start to notice, oh, I'm doing it again. Oh, I'm stressing myself out. Oh, I'm giving myself a migraine. And so I notice my thoughts. I notice my emotions. I notice how things are showing up in my body. I can do the work all the time. I mean, I teach this stuff. I love this stuff. It does help, but it's hard. And it's a whole new way of thinking and being. That's why I started the podcast to kind of put this out there more for people to hear. And I know a lot of people, as I talked about, thrive on these self-imposed deadlines. And some people don't. And this is where mindfulness awareness comes in because it can help you determine which are you. Are you rigidly holding on to these deadlines of like, no, I said I was going to have this by this date and making yourself sick? 
is it a deadline that you can let go of? I talked about with the email, but even like with Instagram, I had decided I was going to post. I only post on Instagram three days a week, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And another busy week where I wasn't feeling well, and I didn't have my Wednesday post up. And I noticed the, the stress, the tightness, the clenching, and I was like, my post isn't ready. And I was like, how about I do it tomorrow? And I was like, yeah, that feels that feels fine. Again, nobody cares. It wasn't anything deadline specific. It didn't matter. So I posted it on Thursday. The world didn't crash and burn. Everything was fine. But we notice when we start like, oh no, but I'm like, but this, this has to go this way or like the lighting has to be this way or all these situations have to be absolutely perfect. Oh wait, here I am creating stress for myself. My cognitive reaction to the situation is making things worse. I can take a pause. I can take a breath. I can learn to accept that this is the reality of the situation. And when I talk about acceptance and I talk about the reality of the present moment, we want to bring in facts, not our opinions or judgments around this, this moment, the facts. Like it is Friday, February 2nd at 1231 PM right now as I'm recording this, this episode, I am sitting in Toronto. It is three degrees outside, mostly sunny with, according to the weather app, a high of three, a low of minus two. I am wearing a pink sweater with gray pants, no makeup. I'm recording this sitting in my mom's dining room at her dining room table. Those are facts. No opinions. I didn't give you my opinion of what the sweater looks like. Just, it's pink. Long sleeves, pink. Gray sweatpants with a, a white drawstring. These are just facts. You can see them. When we talk about the reality of the moment and describing it with facts, I mean like bringing in our five senses. I teach the practice called the raisin and we describe the raisin using our five senses. What do five senses? What do I see? What do I touch? What do I smell? What do I taste? And that is the same thing that we do when we're describing the reality of this moment. The reality of this moment is I have traumatic brain injury. I have a bunch of scars on my head. Luckily, and this is the judgment, the luckily is a judgment. I have a lot of hair, so it, it hides a lot of sins. Again, a judgment, like reflecting on my opinion of the scars, right? Calling them sins. I often, I joked after the surgery, more scars than ex-boyfriends. I mean, it is a joke and a judgment. Also kind of a fact, I do have a lot of scars. A lot of small ones, a few mediums and one big one, but my hair hides it. This is the reality of this moment. I don't have to like the reality to accept it. And there's a lot of stuff connected to the brain injury that causes me stress. I don't have to like the reality to accept it. I can learn to tolerate a lot of this stuff. I can learn to change my emotional reaction to things. And to solve some of these problems. There were definitely times during um, the last few years where I was in between surgeries where I wasn't utilizing my skills. And I acknowledge this and I accept it. I mean, I know how woo-woo this whole sounds, but this stuff works. It's not always easy and it's very tough. And we talk, I talked in the, in the brain injury group this week around acceptance and the idea that this too shall pass. Like I know that this stuff will pass. But I could also be tired of it in the middle, in the midst of it. I'm recording this again, Friday, February 2nd, 1234 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And this 
was day, say day three and a half of migraine. The half, because as I alluded to, the first day I was supposed to record this, I had a headache. So that's the half day. But then Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, migraines. I had a migraine this morning. And three days of a migraine is the, the worst. I almost swore. It's, it sucks. But it's my reality. I get migraines for days. Get them in the morning. I get a bit of peace sometimes with the meds. Sometimes it comes back in the evening, which sucks. But it is the reality. And so do the work around accepting the fact that I get migraines. I talked in my group about the two arrows. So the first arrow is my migraines. And the second arrow is I had a lot of judgments around them. This is the worst. I've never felt so terrible. And so the check in the facts that I talked about, bringing in factual statements to counteract some of these thoughts. This is never the worst that I've ever felt. After the first accident, when I was hit by the bus, I was hooked up to an IV of morphine for days. Obviously, whatever migraine I am experiencing now is better, which is a judgment, but is better than when I needed to be hooked up to an IV of morphine. So this is never the worst that I've ever felt, but it feels that way in the moment. But I check the facts and remember like, no, this isn't the worst I've ever felt. I do remember I came to in the OR as they were transferring me to the stretcher to wheel me to recovery after surgery number two. Pretty sure I screamed. That to me is my level 10. I screamed and then I asked, I asked for my mommy. Literally, I said, can I see my mommy? Or when can I see my mommy? I think is what I said. I was 31. They were like, soon, soon. They actually brought her into recovery, which she, they almost never let people come into recovery. She got to see me for a minute, I think to kind of calm me down. And then she left and I saw her again when I got brought up to the room. But I lost my thought. Oh, so that I can refer to as my level 10. So this moment, as bad as it is, I've had worse. But also, when we check the facts, we remember that this feels terrible right now. It feels like it's never ending. But I know for a fact that it will end because they do. Maybe three days, maybe four days. Oh, between Christmas and New Year's, it was six days of migraines. That was the worst. Again, a judgment, but I hadn't had a long stretch like that in like a really long time. So it was one of the worst, but which is a judgment. But I know that this will last. Or sorry, I know that this will pass. Might not be as soon as I would like, but it will pass. This stressful situation will end. I might not get to choose when or how, but I know that it too shall pass. You don't have to like it, but I can learn to tolerate it. Like the, the big work commitment that I touched on, maybe my solving the problem is asking for an extended deadline. Maybe my solving the problem is asking for somebody to work alongside me. Maybe my solving the problem is delegating a different task to somebody else. And maybe it's learning to tolerate the problem. Maybe there is nothing else that I can do other than sort of buckle down and get through it. And so how can I tolerate it? How can I find some ways to control things that are outside of my control? I can choose how I respond each moment to the stressful situation. And this is what mindfulness helps us to do, the window of choice. It helps us to learn how to exist in these moments. I have, I have several programs. 
But I have one in particular uh, that I call Stop the Panic, and it's really about learning how to regulate our emotions to practice some of these distress tolerance skills. My program from Overwhelm to Ease, it's all about like combining some of that stuff from Stop the Panic, but it's all about learning how to create more ease in our lives. These are some of my bigger programs, but even my seven-day free challenge, 10 minutes a day to quickly learn how to calm your mind. Some of these practices, some of these strategies, my mindfulness from beginners. There's so many programs that deal with a lot of this stuff because learning how to do this is so important. And for whatever reason, we're not taught this in school and we should be. This should be something that we learn how to do as kids and we don't. And so I teach my niece, I teach my nephew, I teach, I teach to you listening to right now, you've got this qualified psychotherapist, brain injury survivor. And as my friend called me the other day, a badass that you can put into your pocket and take with you with this weekly podcast. I share this stuff on Instagram. I share it inside my programs because this stuff, oh my goodness, life-changing, life-saving, saved my life. The last few years, I, I mean, I don't even think, I have a lot of words and a lot of language, but I don't even think I have the words to, to describe what it was like to go through all this again, to have to rebuild my life again, to, you know, finally achieve a lifelong dream of getting my master's and to have it sort of feel like it was taken away in six months. Like six months after I graduated, I was hit by the car. And while I still have the skills, I don't have the, I've lost the ability to think quickly, to remember easily. Like even in this podcast, there are, I mean, you don't know this because I edited it out, but there's pauses. I fumble my words. I have a brain injury. And like a significant one that I downplay with, I downplay because of my own, except like, because I'm still working around accepting it. Reality. I, I don't have to like it to accept it. And acceptance, I talk about it as like a puzzle because there's always another piece that you can fit in. And I'm not fully there yet. And that's also why it's called the mindfulness journey, because this is a journey. Healing anxiety one moment at a time. Acceptance one moment at a time. I don't always have to like it, but by learning mindfulness, by learning to recognize my thoughts, my emotions and sensations, how they show up in my body helps me to manage my stress one moment at a time. The choose one strategy, doing one thing at a time. Being in this moment, it helps. My life has been pretty scary over the last few years. People constantly tell me like, I don't know how you did it. And like, you're so resilient and you're so brave. And it's like, because I focus on one moment at a time. One breath, one moment, one task. Choose one. It makes things easier. Breaking a big task down into tinier pieces helps. And when we notice the thoughts, the judgments, the shoulds, but I should be better than this. I should be able to keep up with everybody else. And then we let that go. Like, can I let this go? Am I doing this to myself? Am I causing my own stress? Is my reaction to the situation making things worse? Can I choose to respond differently? Can I take a breath? Can I take a moment? Can I choose one? 
And I find some source of control. And that could even just be, I can choose what I wear every day. There was a time after the first accident where I, I couldn't do much, but I could get dressed. And so that's what I did. I got dressed. I focused on what I was going to wear. I ended up starting a fashion blog for brief, a brief period of time because I could get dressed. And this is the one thing that I could control outside of everything else. I could get dressed. And now these days with running the business, it's focusing on what's the one thing that I can do today that'll help me, my business and future Charlene. What can current Charlene do? What can current you do for future you? How can you help out future you today? What is one thing that you can do today to help out future you? And that's mindfulness. I typically end with a breathing practice, but today I'm going to end with, with this idea of choosing one, doing one thing mindfully. If you're sending an email, just send the email. Don't have, you know, a bunch of browser windows open at the same time, music running in the background, texting or whatever. Just one. Choose one. If you're take a, taking a walk, take a walk. Don't do six other things at the same time. Stop multitasking. Even just, just for a few minutes. If you're eating dinner, just eat dinner. Maybe you don't eat in front of the TV today. Or maybe you do, but you take a few bites and then you turn the TV on. See if you can be present in this moment. You don't have to like it to do it. If you really want to challenge yourself, try and be present to just sit, to put your phone away when you're waiting somewhere. Oh, that's, that's tough. We don't like to wait. I mean, I sometimes find myself scrolling through my phone while I'm watching something on TV. Like I, like I, I don't even watch stuff with commercials and I'm still like distracting and trying to multitask. And then I notice I put the phone down or I pause the TV to do what I'm doing on the phone. One thing at a time. Not always easy. Even us mindfulness teachers struggle with being mindful all the time. But choose one. One thing. And see what that's like. Really pay attention and to notice. What does it feel like to just focus on getting one thing done? And if there is this task, because so many people that I've talked to inside of my business, so many people come to me and they're like, I'm 85 percent of the way through this and I just I just can't finish so maybe that's the one the one thing that you're almost done and maybe you can now find the time to finish it whatever it is can you focus on just one thing and get it done again see what notice pay attention really be mindful pay attention to what that is like to finish this task to cross it off the list and then to sit and just breathe for a moment. Like when I finish this podcast episode, I'm going to take a breath. I'm going to turn off the mic, turn off the camera, close in the computer, and take a break. One thing at a time. One moment at a time. It helps. So taking a moment today and throughout the rest of the week to just choose one. And I would love it if you do, if you take this into consideration, if you do this practice. I would love it if you then... Find me on Instagram at The Mindfulness Journey and send me a DM and tell me what it was like. What did you notice? And you might hate it, even if you hate it, which is a judgment, but still tell me about it. I want to hear. I want to hear what that's like. How did it feel to just choose one? And next week, 
I'm going to, I'm going to talk a bit more about stress, anxiety, but we're going to focus on procrastinating and how that, how anxiety can manifest as procrastination. Touched on it a bit in today's episode, but we're really going to dive into it next week. So that's going to be a good one. And I can't wait to, to share this time with you, to come back into my virtual living room, to sit down together and to discuss anxiety, procrastinating. Until then. Take care and be well.